The following is a CJBT Productions podcast. This is the Music History Today Highlights podcast number five. This week, we discussed putting Barry White into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We put Derek Carter into the EDM Hall of Fame. And we did three Patreon podcasts, including a very special one concerning the Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show. This podcast gives you the highlights from all of the podcasts on this network that came out this past week. Let's start with the Music History Today, the weekly edition, which drops every Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. On that podcast, we usually go over the music news of the week, do some album reviews, talk about who should be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and go over the music charts for the week. This week, we started only doing the news, charts, and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame segments on the free version of this podcast, which you can find wherever you're listening to this particular podcast on right now. And here is a clip from that podcast. February, in America at least, is Black History Month. So, for the next four weeks, we're going to make the case for putting some black artists into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This next artist shocked me, honestly, because I thought he was already in. For some reason, the Hall voters haven't seen fit to put him in, and that needs to change pronto. Barry Eugene Carter was born in 1944 in Texas. During his teens, he and his brother were in a gang. His brother was killed by another gang, and Barry ended up doing a little time in jail for stealing tires. It was while he was in jail that he first heard Elvis Presley's song, It's Now or Never. Barry said that it changed his life. Once out of jail, Barry decided to become a singer. He started doing backup vocals, then started recording his own songs. He ended up working as an A&R guy for Delphi Records developing, writing, and producing songs for other artists. By this time, he was known by what we all know him as today, Barry White. In the early 1970s, Barry was working with a Supreme-style group called Love Unlimited. In 1972, they had a hit called Walking in the Rain with the One I Love. He then ended up switching record labels and went to 20th Century Records. It was there where his solo recording career flourished. Starting in 1973, he started racking up hits on the R&B charts like Never Gonna Give You Up, Can't Get Enough of Your Love, It's Ecstasy When You're Next to Me, and You're the First, 
the last My Everything. Barry's deep voice, smooth vocals, and orchestral arrangements made him one of the preeminent R&B singers and producers of the 1970s until his death in 2003. The man's voice and smooth vocal style is probably responsible for one-tenth of the world's population, considering how many people actually have sex to his music. Seriously. Worldwide, he had 20 gold and 10 platinum singles plus 106 gold albums with 41 of those going platinum. Yet, shockingly, Barry White is not in the Hall of Fame. Now, if you actually want to get your feet wet with him, then I would go with one of his Greatest Hits albums, like Greatest Hits Volumes 1 and 2, or The Ultimate Collection. If you want a deep dive, then definitely go with his 70s heyday albums like Can't Get Enough, Stone Going, and I've Got So Much to Give. Regardless of which ones you add to your playlist, I think you'll agree. Barry White absolutely, positively, finally deserves to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The full version of the podcast with the topic segment, the EDM Hall segment, and reviews to go along with our Rock and Roll Hall of Fame news and chart segments can be found on my Patreon and OnlyFans pages. We'll discuss those later in the podcast, of course. Tuesday's podcasts are always the EDM podcast, where we go over the EDM news and charts and induct someone into our EDM Hall of Fame. It also drops at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time every Tuesday. This past week on the free version of the podcast, we inducted Derek Carter into our EDM Hall of Fame. And here is some of that. February is Black History Month in America, so it seems like a good time to remind people that before EDM became the domain of misogynistic Euro DJs, it was dance music of blacks, Latinos, and the LGBTQ community in America. To that end, let us introduce you to a true underground DJ. Derek Carter started DJing at the age of nine. When he was finally able to drive, he DJed at clubs in Chicago like Shelter, Smart Bar, and Foxy's, all while working at the dance music store Gramophone. In 1988, he got together with Mark Farina and Chris Nazuka and put out a landmark EP that made its way to England and influenced ambient techno at the time there. Soon, Europe came calling and Derek went. Derek also ran the Classic Recordings record label, which purposely released only a hundred records before closing. While he is in demand to work on major label remixes, Having worked with artists like Reichsop and DJ Sneak in the Human League, Chris remains an underground legend to this day, staying as far away from mainstream success as he can, yet influencing so many different DJs and producers, especially with ambient 
techno. And for that alone, we induct DJ Derek Carter into our EDM Hall of Fame. The full version of the EDM podcast with the topic segment, the Thump Magazine Greatest EDM Songs of All Time segment, and the reviews to go along with our EDM Hall of Fame news and chart segments can be found on my Patreon and OnlyFans pages as well. Then, every day, we do a short podcast called the Music History Today podcast, where we go over the music events that happened that day in music history, along with some of the birthdays that day of the musical artist. This past week's birthdays, by the way, included Adam Lambert on January 29th, Phil Collins on January 30th, Justin Timberlake on January 31st, Harry Styles and Jason Isbell on February 1st, Shakira and Gucci Mane on February 2nd, Daddy Yankee and Sean Kingston on February 3rd, and Alice Cooper on February 4th. Now, to the paid podcast. I've also started a Patreon page where I have a couple of tiers at the moment. Tier 1 gives you all of these podcasts, the free ones, that is, along with the full versions of the Music History Today Weekly Edition podcast and the EDM podcast, along with a minimum of four extra podcasts per month. Those podcasts on that tier will be the Top Albums podcast, the Top Singles podcast, the Top Dance Songs podcast, and the Music Hall's Fame podcast, with each of those podcasts dropping one episode per month. That tier will cost $5 per month. There may also be another podcast added for that tier, depending on the month, but those four podcasts are guaranteed each month for Tier 1. Here is a little taste of one of the podcasts that you'll get in that tier this month. There are many ways that people have decided to do best-selling albums lists. Some go by claim sales, that is, what an artist's record label claimed were sold. That actually has problems with it, due to how inaccurate those numbers can be. For instance, Michael Jackson's Thriller album, which has claimed sales ranging anywhere from 47 million copies sold to over 100 million copies sold, that's kind of why any list of the world's best-selling albums is just a little suspect. Because seriously, who's to say how many copies of an album were sold in the former Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War? So, for this podcast, I'm going to use certified numbers, and we're going to keep that list in the good old U.S. of A., the Recording Industry Association of America, or the RIAA as it's known, has been in charge of certifying gold and platinum records since the rock and roll era began in the late 1950s. They've compiled a list of the biggest selling certified albums of all time. As I go on with this list, some of these numbers and positions might change. For instance, any artist might die and push their album sales through the roof. Again, let's use Michael Jackson as an example, whose entire solo catalog sold millions of copies in the first few months after his passing. So this list is as of September 9th, 
2020. The 99th best-selling album of all time is by a group that started out being called the New Yardbirds. Here's what happened. In 1968, the Yardbirds were on their last legs. They played what they thought was their last gig in July and then realized that they still actually had a few concerts that they were contractually obligated to play in Sweden, Switzerland, Denmark, and the Netherlands. Half the band was already on to other projects, so they authorized the remaining members to get new members, but to use the name the Yardbirds when performing. Guitarist Jimmy Page and bassist Chris Dreja went looking for a lead singer and found one in Terry Reed, except that he said no. But he did say to try a guy by the name of Robert Plant. Plant said yes, and since the group still needed a drummer, brought John Bonham, his friend, on board. Dreja then decided to quit to become a photographer. Yet another Pete Best Award winner for leaving a band before it became popular. Dreja, by the way, would pop up later in the band's story in a not-so-good way. Bassist John Paul Jones came to them and asked to join, so with that lineup in hand, they went off and did the final gigs as the new Yardbirds. Once they were done playing their original gigs, they decided to keep going as a group and recorded an album together. They recorded and mixed the album at Olympic Studios in London in October of 1968. The reason why it didn't take too long to record, according to Jimmy Page, was that most of the songs had already been tested and rehearsed during the tour of Scandinavia. Page covered the costs of the studio, which may have actually been another reason why it took only 36 hours of studio time to record the album. Then, with album in hand, they went shopping for a record deal. They had the upper hand in negotiations, and they absolutely, positively knew it. They negotiated a sweet deal with Atlantic Records that gave them copyright control and also control over every aspect of publicity. They released the album on January 12, 1969, to not-so-good reviews, much like most albums that become classics. Also, like many classics, it didn't matter what the critics said about the album to the public. public loved it. It became a huge hit. The critics would eventually come around. In fact, Rolling Stone magazine, who originally hated the album, eventually made it their 29th greatest album of all time. Go figure. There was just one problem with all of this, though. The band's name. They were going to go out on tour with the name The New Yard Birds, but received a cease and desist order from former member, yeah, you guessed it, Chris Dreja. Told you he'd be back. The band would get their name, according to whichever legend you want to go with, from either Bob Dylan or the members of The Who or whoever, who said that the band would go over quote, like a Led Zeppelin. Well, that was wrong. 
The album would go on to sell over 10 million copies and go top 10 in five countries, including America. The album that had the now classic songs, Good Times and Bad Times, Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, Dazed and Confused, I Can't Quit You Baby, and Communication Breakdown was called simply Led Zeppelin One, the 99th best-selling album of all time in America. For Tier 2 on Patreon, you will get all of the free podcasts along with all of the paid podcasts on Tier 1, along with a minimum of at least five additional podcasts per month. That tier is $10 per month. The additional podcasts on that tier are the Top Dance Songs by Decade podcast, the Award Show History podcast, the Music and Concert Venues podcast, and the Music's WTF Moments podcast. Those podcasts each have one episode dropping each month. The Music History In-Depth podcast will also be in the tier and will be a weekly podcast. Still, there may be another podcast added for that tier as well. And much like Tier 1, it all depends on the month, but those five podcasts are guaranteed each month for Tier 2 only. Here is part from one of the podcasts that you'll get in Tier 2 this month, followed by part of the Music History In-Depth podcast, which dropped this past week. Now to the 99th greatest disco song of the 1980s. Janet Jackson is the youngest member of the Jackson family. The world first saw her on the Jackson Family TV variety show. She first concentrated on acting with roles on the TV shows Good Times, Different Strokes, and Fame. In 1982, she put out her self-titled debut album because, as we all know, you can't have a music career unless you name one of your albums after yourself. That album, by the way, went nowhere fast, despite her popularity, going only as high as number 63 on the Billboard Albums charts. Her second album, Dream Street, did even worse, topping out at number 147 on the album's charts. The problem was that Janet's family was running her career and her producers were giving her candy-coated teeny boppers stuff to sing. She was also living in the shadow of her more famous brothers, especially one who was the biggest star at the time with the biggest selling album of all time worldwide. That was it for Janet. She got her family out of her business dealings and took control of her own career. She also had her marriage at the time to singer James DeBarge annulled. She started working with producers Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis after being introduced to them by her new manager, A&M Records exec John McClain. No, not the one from Die Hard. Jam and Lewis gave Janet songs that were originally proposed for singer Sharon Bryant. Brian at the time, though, didn't like the lyrics to the songs, but they had just the right attitude for Janet. The two producers wanted Janet to record at their studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Janet's father, Joe Jackson, didn't want her to. He wanted to keep control of her and her career. 
Jam and Lewis won out, so Janet moved to Minneapolis for a few months. The guy spent the first week just hanging out with Janet, trying to get a feel with where she was in her life and where she wanted to go, more importantly. And then they got to work writing more songs for her. What Have You Done For Me Lately was about her ex, James DeBarge. Control was about getting more control in her life, especially from her father. Nasty was actually about some guys outside her hotel who tried harassing her. The song that became the 99th biggest dance song of the 1980s came from this album. When I Think of You was written by Janet, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis and was the third song that was released in between the songs Nasty and Control. Even though What Have You Done For Me Lately and Nasty were very popular at the time, When I Think of You, which was released on July 28, 1986, was her first number one single in America. In fact, the song went top 40 in nine different countries and was one of the biggest selling songs of 1986 in four different countries, including America, where it was the 32nd biggest song of the year on Billboard's Hot 100 charts. All throughout the project, Janet's father kept interfering. He gave interviews where he said that the album would never sell. Janet just didn't bother to listen. On February 4th, 1986, Janet released Control. The album about empowerment and independence was a smash hit. It hit number one on the album's chart, was the sixth biggest selling album of 1986 and the fifth biggest selling album of 1987. It was nominated for three Grammy Awards, including Album of the Year. After that, Janet's career was in full swing. She became one of the biggest selling artists of all time, and in 2018, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, if only she had listened to her dad, she would have... Yeah, <laughs> never mind. Janet Jackson's 1986 hit, When I Think of You, the 99th biggest dance song of the 1980s. This week, because it was a very special episode, we also gave you for free the Music History Today in-depth podcast. That episode had to do with the Beatles' arrival in America and also playing on the Ed Sullivan TV show. That one we decided to give out for free so that everybody could enjoy it as it is, honestly, my favorite episode of the in-depth podcast that I have ever done. And here is a little bit of that episode. The year was 2001. America, while not in a state of innocence per se, still thought themselves untouchable to a major international terrorist attack. That changed on the morning of September 11th. What started out that day as primary election day in New York City, along with the announcement of Michael Jordan returning to play basketball in the NBA, became a multi-city airplane attack. After that day, 
the country was in mourning and pain. What helped to begin the healing process, especially in New York City, where almost 3,000 people were killed in the terrorist attacks, was a baseball World Series matchup only a month later between the New York Yankees and the Arizona Diamondbacks. Through those epic seven games, with Arizona winning the series on a last at bat, the city and the nation began the healing process. What does this all have to do with the events of the week of February 5th through the 11th in 1964? Just this. Sometimes, in order for a nation to begin to heal from a shared traumatic event, it takes pop culture and sports to distract the country from its problems. If only for a night, or, in this particular case, a week. In order to understand how monumental that week in 1964 was, you have to understand the mindset of the country at that time. Flashback to only a few months earlier. In November 1963, President John F. Kennedy was beginning to be in a bit of a funk. His re-election bid was still a ways off, but he was beginning to lay the groundwork for it. He had started off the year with a 76% approval rating, with a 13% disapproval rating, but by November 1963, those numbers were going in the wrong direction. Some of it due to racial tensions and his handling of the civil rights crisis in the South. Vietnam, remember, at that time was barely a blip on the radar in America since America was only sending, quote, military advisors, end quote, back then. Anyway, by November 1963, his approval ratings had slipped from 76% to 58%, while his disapproval ratings had leapt up from 13% to 30%. Add to that, there were problems in Texas. Texas was a state that he barely won in the 1960 election. Plus, there was a lot of infighting in the Democratic Party in the state. He decided to do a quick swing through Texas. He wanted to help start his re-election campaign there, raise money for the Democratic Party, and, of course, to help end the squabble within the state party. The morning of November 22, 1963, Kennedy started out by speaking at a breakfast meeting in Fort Worth, Texas. From there, he flew to Dallas, where he was supposed to speak at a luncheon at the Trademark, then fly that afternoon to Austin for a fundraising dinner. The president landed in Dallas, where he was met by a large crowd at Love Field Airport. He then got into his convertible limo with his wife, Jackie, and the governor of Texas, John Connolly, and his wife, Nellie. As the motorcade made its way through Dallas, the crowd grew much bigger, slowing down the motorcade. The crowd on Houston Street was particularly big. However, they were going to turn onto Elm Street and go through Dealey Plaza, where the crowd was a little thinner. 
the car made the left-hand turn on off of Houston Street onto Elm Street. As it began going through Dealey Plaza, Nellie Connolly turned to President Kennedy and said, quote, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you, end quote. To which Kennedy said, quote, No, you certainly can't, end quote. At that moment, just behind his right shoulder, a gun was pointed at him from an upper floor of the Texas School Book Depository. The shooter, Lee Harvey Oswald, fired three shots at the slow-moving limo. By the time the third shot struck the president, the crowd of witnesses, deep state members, shooter on the grassy knoll, FBI killers, CIA killers, mob killers, Cuban killers, aliens, President Obama, and just about every other person who's been implicated in the assassination by conspiracy theorists, looked on in stunned, screaming disbelief. The motorcade sped up, got on the nearby freeway, and rushed to the hospital, but to no avail. The third shot was the kill shot. Within an hour of the first shot, President John F. Kennedy Jr. was pronounced dead. The country went into a state of deep mourning. It was going to take something big to break them out of their national state of grief. Little did anyone know that a music act that was just beginning to make a name for themselves overseas would help to begin to heal America long before an overseas war later in the decade would help to rip the country apart at the seams. Across the pond, there were four lads from Liverpool. The Beatles had put out their first album in Europe earlier in 1963, then went touring through Europe to support it. As they toured, the crowds became bigger and bigger, and soon what we now call Beatlemania started to form. Throngs of adoring fans, mainly female, started showing up at the concerts. And in the streets, and at their hotels, and at the airports. On Halloween 1963, the lads were coming back to Heathrow Airport from a trip to Sweden. They were met in the airport by a swarm of people, including over a hundred reporters. Also in the airport, on that exact same day, was a man who would go on to play a pivotal role in them getting their big break in America. Ed Sullivan had the number one show in America at that time in terms of variety shows. What Dick Clark was to pop music on daytime television, Ed Sullivan was to nighttime television. His show broke Elvis Presley and helped to turn him into a megastar. Ed witnessed the Beatles' hysteria and thought that it reminded him of Elvis. Ed got in touch with Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, and offered him a lot of money to do one appearance on his show. Brian had a better idea. 
He knew that the Beatles had to conquer America. They had already conquered Europe. He made a deal with Sullivan where the band would do multiple appearances and also do a quick tour of the United States at the same time. The PR machine got to work. Capitol Records, who were supposed to be their American distributor, refused to release the album, believing that rock and roll in America was a fad and was dead. At that point, rock and roll had given way to teen idols playing a sugar-coated version of pop music. Rock never died in England, though, which is what gave rise to the Beatles in Europe to begin with. So, in a sense, Capitol Records were right, at least about American audiences. Even magazines and newspapers considered the genre dead, wondering aloud and in print why a boy band from England was such a big deal. It didn't matter. This was different. So, Capitol Records were initially dropped, but then later reinstated in favor of VJ Records. The single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, was released in late December, playing first at WWDC Radio in Washington, D.C., then making its way to the other major cities. The song hit number one in January 1964. Two albums were released that month, one by Capitol Records and the other by VJ, due to Capitol being dropped, then not dropped. There was another song that was released around that time, which we're going to talk about next. Remember, you get a minimum of 42 podcasts on Tier 1 and 50 podcasts on Tier 2. Plus, I may add another tier or two down the road. Not quite sure as of yet, but probably will. I also have an OnlyFans page that is $10 per month that has all of the offerings that you will find in the Tier 2 package on Patreon for those of you who don't like dealing with Patreon. If you like what I do and the value that it brings and you want more, then please, please, please consider supporting my pages. And that is it for this week's edition of the Music History Today Highlights Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more music podcasts, check us out on all of your favorite podcast providers, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, etc., etc., and also on OnlyFans and Patreon, all under Music History Today. Audio engineering and editing, video editing, writing, narration, catering, basically everything is done by yours truly. You can find us on our website at cjbtproductions.com. Our podcast is on all of your favorite podcast providers, such as Apple Music, Google Podcasts, CastBox, etc., etc. Look for them all under Music History Today when you search for us there. If you would like to support this podcast... Our paid OnlyFans can be found at OnlyFans.com backslash Music History Today. And our Patreon can be found at Patreon.com backslash Music History Today. We are also on Twitter at Music History Day. And you can find us on YouTube and Spotify. Just search for us under Music History Today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>